So if you've ever installed software on a computer or on your phone or logged into a website, every single one of us has seen this little banner that pops up that says end user license agreement. And it's really long and you have to scroll through it and at the bottom is I accept everything you've just said. End user license agreements are everywhere. And um, they're written by lawyers and for lawyers, which means human beings like you and I cannot read them. They make no sense. Either that, or if you really, really are having a hard time falling asleep, go ahead and read one. Because they're guaranteed they'll knock you right out. But they're really important. They stipulate some important things. Uh, they say that you don't own this software. You have a license to use this software. So what that means is you can't copy it and give it to friends or something. You're just using it. Um, it provides specific conditions for how you'll use the website or the software. So one of the funniest ones was iTunes, the old Apple Music app that said you can't use this to launch nuclear weapons. Not sure how you would, but you're not allowed to use it that way, so if you did. But it does say things like you can't use this for illegal activity, and if you do, we're not responsible. You violated your license by doing that. Um, it usually provides limitations on how you interact with the company. So if something goes horribly wrong, if it you know, wipes out your hard drive or something, you can't go and sue the company. They'll stipulate an end user license agreement. You can do arbitration, which means you get two lawyers together arguing instead of going before a judge. Um, and often, you know, that's, that's the way that it'll do it. Um, nobody reads these things, and they know it. And so I got two examples of, of uh, people taking advantage of that, and, and they're, they're not horrible. Uh, as an April Fool's Day joke in 2010, uh, the British game retailer, GameStation, who, by the way, is now out of business, uh, added a clause in their end license user agreement, end user license agreement that said that um, you would give your eternal soul to the company. And it had a little checkbox, and all you had to do was uncheck it, and you could opt out. <laughs> and it also had a link that said to finalize this opt out, click on this link, and if you clicked on the link, you went and got a voucher for a free game or money off or something like that. Um, they determined that um, 7,500 users agreed to give GameStation their eternal souls uh, because nobody read it. 85% of their, their users, 88%, didn't pay attention to those things. Uh, so the funniest part was it said, the way that if, we, if we decide to exercise this, we will uh, notify you with uh, eight-foot-tall burning letters in the sky or something like that. So fortunately, they're out of business, and they can't, they can't call that in. Um, another example, which is not so bad, is in 2019, uh, Georgia high school teacher uh, Donalane Andrews won $10,000 because she read the, uh, the terms and conditions in travel insurance she was buying, and it said, if you call us at this number, we'll give you $10,000, the first person to call. And so she was buying travel insurance for a trip to England, and she got $10K because she actually read it. <laughs> so. The point is, we don't have an end user's license agreement for reading the scripture, but we do have the warning, you need to read all of it. And you need to read it carefully and thoroughly. What you heard John read this morning is very challenging text. And so what I wanna do is have us fix our brains on this and think about this for a second. This is in a context. This is not floating off in space. There's a context here, and what is the context? Let me remind you, because it's been a couple weeks, I've been in and out for a little bit. The book of 1 Peter is about hope in the dispersion. So just like when Abraham was in the promised land, he was going to inherit that land. That was his. But he didn't live there. He traveled back and forth across it. 
He didn't set up a city. He lived with tent pegs. And, and eventually his children would inherit and it would be Israel. It would be theirs. But for Abraham, he's just wandering. And so for us, that's what Peter says is we are elect exiles in the dispersion. This isn't our home yet. We're wandering here. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our hope is in heaven. But we're wandering through this promised land because one day it will be ours. And so how do you do that when you don't have a home to return to, when, when this is kind of our place but not really our place? And how do you do that? Well, Peter's been telling us you've got to have hope here. And so he's providing hope for us. Now, the section we're in, which is most of chapter 2 and now into chapter 3, is what happens when you suffer unjustly? How can you have hope in that? How, how can we maintain hope when we're not just exiles or, or foreigners in this land, but when they actually don't like us? And they oppose us. So what he's going to tell us today is he's going to, he, that's the context this is in, is suffering unjustly. And how do we have hope in it? So let's not drift too far from that. That's the important part. So let's go ahead and take a look. So verse 18, he says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That, again, is in a context. Look back one verse, verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So what does he mean by that? Well, if you suffer for doing evil, guess what? You had it coming. I mean, you did evil. That's what happens. But if you suffer for doing good, if you do the right thing and you suffer, that's not a bad thing. That's, that's glorious. That's gracious in God's sight. And so what's the example? Jesus. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So that's, that's our, our chief example, our prime example. Was there anybody on earth who should never have suffered? Only one man, and we killed him. Jesus is the example of unjust suffering. He suffered the righteous, it's singular in Greek, for the unrighteous, it's plural. One man died for many. Right? So he suffered the righteous for the unrighteous. He shouldn't have suffered. He shouldn't have had to, but he did. Why? What was the point? Why bother? Why go through that, Jesus? That he might bring us to God. This is a healthy reminder that God does this on purpose. He has a reason for doing this. So 1 Peter 3.17 says, For it is better to suffer for doing good. Oh, I'm sorry, I already read that one. Um, what, what he's saying there is that God has plans in our suffering. We may not know it at the time. We may not be able to see it. Jesus could. Because Jesus was not only the perfect man, he was God-man, he was also a prophet, and he could see, and a priest, and he could intercede, and a king who would come and reign. So he's like us, but he's not like us. That's how he could bring us to God, rather than making it possible for us to get ourselves to God. So, so that's the, the, the image here. Is your suffering rising to that level? Well, no. Your suffering will not rise to that level. But you will suffer. You will find opposition. You will find oppression. You will be opposed in many things. So where, where Peter goes is he continues on. He says that he might he suffered once for sins, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What does that mean? Well, we understand being put to death in the flesh. He was killed. He died on a cross. He, he, he physically ceased to function in, in a bodily form. But then he goes on and says, but made alive in the spirit. Now, it sounds like he was alive in the flesh, and then he wasn't alive in the flesh, but he was alive in the spirit, and he switched modes or something. That's not what Peter means. What he's talking about here is Jesus 
was alive in the flesh. He suffered. He actually physically died, but he didn't cease to exist. He didn't blank out. He, didn't, he wasn't erased from history. He continued to live in a spirit way. In other words, that's what we get to do, is when we die, we don't just blink out of existence. I was looking at Twitter. There was a, a discussion. I think it was about abortion or something. And somebody brought up the question of eternal life or life after death. And this one person said, well, when I die, I will be in the same state of existence as I was before I was born. And I just was like, oh, that's terrible. That, that's just so disheartening. And actually, nobody believes that. Nobody actually lives as if that were true, that you die and you cease to exist. You know how you know? Because they're not all raving lunatics, tearing everything up. If this is all I get, is this you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 years is all I get, I'm going hog wild. Nobody lives like that. Thank God. That's God's general grace to humanity. But what this is reminding us is, though you're facing this oppression, though you're facing this suffering, this opposition from the world, even if it kills you, that's not the end. Jesus suffered, he died, and he ceased to live in a, in a physical form, and he lived in a spiritual form, but he didn't remain that way, and we'll get to that, that there's more good news there. So he, he, he suffers, he dies, and he was alive in the spirit, and that's how we'll be alive. Now, verse 19 gets a little dicey, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. What this sounds like is Jesus is crucified. Jesus dies. He, he ceases to exist physically. His body is, is in the tomb. Spiritually, he goes and he, print, he proclaims to spirits in prison. That's what it sounds like chronologically. Um, fortunately, there's more to it than this. Read the end user license agreement fully. <laughs> So there's more to it than this. What it does mean is in, in the spirit, whatever that means, he went and proclaimed to spirits who were in prison. So who are these spirits? Well, Peter doesn't leave us hanging. He tells us, who are these spirits that Jesus went and proclaimed to? He, they were in prison because they were formally, they formally did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So whatever it means that he went and proclaimed to them in spirit, the audience he's talking to were those who were disobedient in the days of Noah. So it's not everybody. It's these people. Why bring up Noah? Where does Noah come from in this? Well, I think what Peter is doing is he's going to show us Noah is a great example of suffering. Suffering unjustly and suffering justly. So he starts with these people, who, these spirits who are in prison because they didn't obey in the days of Noah. So let's stop here and back up and just re reset or uh, repeat the, the story of Noah just to get it in our heads real quick. Not going to go through the whole thing. First of all, who was Noah? Well, uh, Genesis 5, 28 says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful toil of our hands. So what that's doing is that's going back to the fall. Adam had sinned. God cursed the ground and said, by the sweat of your brow, you'll do it. So what's happening here is Lamech is saying, this is the one who's going to give us relief. And, and the reason he's called Noah is because relief sounds like Noah. Noah is a little shorter version of it. So what's happening here is they're trusting God's promise. They're, they're anticipating God's promise. And they think Noah might be the one to do it. They didn't have any idea how many millennia 
this was going to go on. But they're looking to, to Noah. So that's, that's who his name is. And so what happens is in, in Genesis 6, God tells us that violence had filled the world. Corruption was horrible. Where does this violence and corruption come from? Well, the first sin was to disobey God and eat the fruit of the tree that they weren't supposed to. The second one was to murder your brother. So right off the bat, violence is cooked into humanity. And what's going on is by the time we get to Genesis 6, it is, it is flowing. It is the, the mark of the world is the violence towards each other. The hatred, the, 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 um, the hatred of God, the opposition to each other. And so what God says is, I'm done. I'm going to wipe them out. Now, if we only had Genesis, or Genesis 6 to go by, we would say, well, God is capable of making a mistake, and he's capable of changing his mind. Fortunately, we have a whole bunch of other scripture that says God doesn't make mistakes, and he doesn't change his mind. So what's Noah saying when he says, I regret making man, I'm going to wipe him out? I think what Noah's trying to do is he's trying, or I mean Moses is trying to do when he wrote that is he's trying to help us to see this is how bad it was. This, this is the level to which it had risen, is that it grieved God's heart to see humanity like that. So as God looks around the world, it says in, in uh, Genesis 6, 8, and 9, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So as God looks across all of humanity, which probably wasn't a huge group at that point, it's, it's only a handful of generations since Adam and Eve, but of all of humanity, he looks and he goes, they're all so rotten, I'm going to kill them all, except for Noah. No, Noah has found favor in my sight. Noah's a righteous man. Noah walks with God. So what does that mean for Noah? Does that mean he was just a great guy? He just never did anything wrong. No, that's not how you found favor in God's sight. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 11 tells us exactly how he did that. Hebrews 11:7 says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in fervent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. So this is by faith. It wasn't like in building the ark he came to faith. He had faith, and he, that led him to build the ark. When Moses is talking about what it means to be declared righteous in the book of Genesis, what does he mean? We have a prime example. Couldn't be clearer. Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So what we, what we see with Noah is Noah was not just this perfect man. He was a man of faith. He was trusting God. He was looking forward to the promise that everybody thought he, you know, his family thought he was going to bring them. Is Lord, you promised us in the garden. And, and that's what he's anticipating. That's what he's looking forward to. So the generation that he was in is described this way. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. So how bad was it? It was that bad. So God commands Noah and his sons to build a giant boat. Huge, gigantic boat. Um, and that is how he's going to save him. He's, he's not going to wipe away the righteous with the unrighteous. He's going to put him in a boat and save him. Um, now, this is the tricky part. How long did it take Noah to build the ark? The estimates that I've read went from five years to 120. So pick a number. Um, I'm going to go with 100. And here's why. 
because in Genesis 5.32, it says that Noah was 500 years old and he had three sons. Now, that doesn't mean he had three sons in one year. One was older, one was middle, and one was younger. It means that he was 500 and he had three boys. He had three, three men. So 500. And then in 7.6, he goes into the ark when he's 600 years old. So just going with the literal literary clues here, I, I would say it took maybe 100 years, maybe less, a little bit less. The other clue, though, is what Peter says here. It says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So this is, this is saying, hinting it was probably a fairly long time um, because God's patience waited in that time. So that's, that's the story. The family goes into the ark. God closes the door, and, or fills it with animals, closes the door, and then floods the earth. And, and that's the story of Noah. So um, what, do, what does Peter mean that Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison who were disobedient in the days of Noah? I think what he's getting at is, what he's saying is, the spirit of Christ was present in Noah as he was doing what he was doing. So if you're justified by faith alone, we understand that means you're regenerate, that the spirit is working in you. So if Noah is justified by grace, then the spirit is working in him. So that's, that's the first thing. Also, what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 2.5 is he calls Noah a herald of righteousness. So Noah's not just a great carpenter. While he's building the ark, he's proclaiming, he's preaching righteousness. And what did God say that generation was like? Their heart was evil always, constantly filled with evil. So Noah and his family are building the ark. Noah is turning and preaching, please, the wrath of God's coming. You've got to turn. You've got to stop doing this. Just quit your wicked ways. And they're blowing him off. And you can tell because they all got killed. If any of them had repented, they would have been on the ark. They didn't go on the ark. So what, what I think is happening here is that Jesus is preaching to those people through Noah. The other reason I say that is because at the beginning of the letter, it talked about um, in, in chapter 1, verse 10 and 11, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to come, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating. So the prophets of the old are looking, and it's the spirit of Christ in them that is indicating what's going to come. So it's probably the same kind of thing that's happening for Noah. So when it says that Jesus in the spirit went and preached to those who were in prison, it doesn't mean that after he died, he went and preached to those in prison. What it means is something much more glorious, huge. We didn't exist at a moment. And then at another moment, body, spirit, soul, mind, heart, strength, we existed. Jesus existed because he's God. So in the spirit that he existed and he could go and preach to those people back in time. Then at a certain time, he was born human. And he added to that eternal, his human nature, his human body, a human spirit, a human mind, human will, human emotions. We're added to that infinity. So this is not, he went to preach to people who are in hell. It's even grander. It's bigger. Our eternal God was doing that then. And then he came in time and he suffered and he died. And he reverted to that same spot. He went back to what he was and was preaching righteousness. So Noah is um, 
proclaiming righteousness to these people while the ark was being prepared, verse 20, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. It seems like, and this is a bit of an inference, so if you don't agree with me, that's okay. It's just me you're disagreeing with. I think Noah must have faced great opposition and great persecution while he was doing that because he was a preacher of righteousness amongst a bunch of people who were not righteous. We got plenty of examples of what it's like to be a preacher of righteousness amongst the people who are not righteous. Read Jeremiah. He's proclaiming, you guys just lay down your arms, you're already judged, and what do they do? They throw him in a pit. They arrest him. They haul him off to Egypt. They opposed him at every moment. In the New Testament, what happened with Stephen? Stephen is a preacher of righteousness. By the way, his sermon was going great till he got to application. And then he says, you people have always done this, and they killed him. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch to think if Noah is the only righteous man in all the earth, if all of the earth is only doing evil all the time, and he's preaching, I can't imagine that they went, well, that's interesting. I'm pretty sure they opposed him. Maybe they, maybe they threw stones at him. Maybe they stole his equipment. Maybe they stood outside and railed at him and made fun of him and, and ridiculed him. Maybe they tried to kill him on occasion. I don't know, but he's doing that. And so what's the result? While he's working on the ark, he, he finishes the ark, and then eight persons, he and his wife and his three sons and their wives, get in the ark. And out of all of humanity, these are the only people saved. This is the only righteous person, and he saved them. So what happened is, is he's building this ark. And by building the ark, what Hebrews 11.7 says again is, by this, by building the ark, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So he's, he's building a boat, and people are rally, railing at him and making fun of him. And what are you doing? Man, it hasn't rained that much. What are, you, are you nuts? But they're convicted by it because they know he's building a boat for a reason. And they hate it, and they don't want it. And so he condemns them by building this boat, not just in the work that's done, but also in getting into it. We'll come back to a little bit more of that. When what Peter has been telling us is that our conduct matters. What we actually do, how we live, it, it's, it's good and well to believe, and we must believe, and we must have faith, but it also it, it, it is a matter of how we live. So in 2.12, he says, keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So they'll see your good deeds, they'll call you an evildoer, and yet something inside them is saying, you know that's not true. You know that's not right. And so they'll, they'll call us evildoers, they'll oppress us, they'll oppose us. The same thing was wives, submit to your husbands, even those who don't obey the word, because you might win them by that. They, they might see your good conduct and go, there's something odd about this woman. What is going on? So this is the suffering that we have to endure, and this is the way we walk in it. Now, what comes next in verse 21 is the hard part. This is the part that caused me to tremble and quake. It's like, i got to preach this. Um, it's funny because Martin Luther had a great quote about not just this verse, but this section that we're doing today. 
he wrote a commentary on the epistles of Peter and Jude. And when he got to this part, this is what he says. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So this is Luther. Um, what I'm going to try to do is explain this next part. And if you don't get it, or I don't explain it well, no, brothers and sisters, we're in good company. This is very difficult to understand, and it's very confusing. So listen, but we, just one, one more thing, we have to keep it in context. What is the context? Suffering, suffering unjustly, and being delivered from unjust suffering. That's our context. So now let me read it. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I love the way the, NIV, or the ESV does this. Other translations say, uh, pertaining to this or corresponding to this, baptism now saves you. So it's just right to be pulled out of context and say, see, baptism saves you. So what they did is they inserted the, the condition right in the middle. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. So it's not just rank baptism. So, okay, here's the hard part. What is it corresponding to? What, what, what are we talking about here when we said baptism corresponds to this? By the way, the word for corresponds is antitupos, which is where we get antitype. Have you ever heard that, literary terms? An antitype is something that comes before in a story and pictures something coming later. So what Peter is saying here is baptism is the type. The antitype, the previous type, was the ark. I think that's what he's talking about. It makes the most sense. It's, he just said eight people got in the ark and were saved. Baptism corresponding to that now saves you. So how does baptism save us? How does it, well, the first answer is, well, however it corresponds to the ark, that's how it saves us. So let's remember Abraham, or I mean, remember Noah for a moment. Was Noah eschatologically unsaved until he got, until the boat was floating? In other words, was he lost like everybody else until the boat was floating? No, not at all. He was declared righteous before God ever mentioned a boat. And we've seen, how was he declared righteous? By faith. So Noah, from the very beginning, had faith. He, he, was, he was declared to be the only righteous person on earth because of that. So then he's got faith, and what does he do? Well, God comes and says, go build a boat. And Noah's response is not, why? He starts building a boat. He, it's again, it is faith. He has been working in his life. The Spirit of Christ came and preached through Noah to a lost generation. Now, admittedly, God can use unregenerate, wicked people to preach the gospel. But he doesn't always. And more often, he's, re he's using regenerate men who are faithful to proclaim his gospel. And that's, that's exactly who we know Noah is. We got a, a peek behind the curtain. We know that's who he is. So God's working in his life. God is proclaiming righteousness through this man as he's building the ark. And in building the ark, he's condemning that generation. So now, when it says baptism now saves you, does that mean that once the, the ark started floating, then Noah was regenerate and born again? And No, it can't mean that. 
So when we look at this and we say baptism corresponds to that, we can't look and say, if you dunk somebody in water, they're saved. That, that's, not what Paul, that's not what Peter means. And you can tell because the very next thing out of his mouth is not the washing of the body, you know, removal of dirt from the body. It's not the, the water that does it. It's something much better, something bigger than that. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. So when we're baptized, what, we're, what he's saying here is it's not the going through the water that saves you. It's everything that baptism symbolizes. It's everything baptism promises and contains that saves you. You just see it in this one moment. This is my theology of sacraments, big fancy terms. What I mean by that is this is what I mean by, this is what I think about baptism and the Lord's Supper. They are proclamations of the gospel, plain and simple. First, Peter, or First Corinthians 11 couldn't be clear. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death until he comes again. It's a physical form. So you come to church and you're, you've yelled at the kids the whole way or you couldn't find your keys or you got there late or you're hungry and you're already thinking about what's for lunch and, and then all of a sudden here comes communion. Oh my gosh. God is giving you grace. He's feeding your faith physically in a way you can't miss. You're picking up a cup and you're picking up a piece of bread and you're eating and drinking and somewhere in the back of your brain you're remembering those words. This is my body broken for you. This is my my uh, blood poured out for you for the new covenant. Baptism is the same thing. Baptism does the exact same thing. We would like to boil baptism down to have one meaning. It, it means one thing, and it's universal throughout the scriptures. It only means one thing. I don't think it's like that. There's, there's a handful of ways that, um, that baptism is spoken of. The first one that I think of is when Jesus instituted it in, in Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them. So step two for becoming a disciple is you believe Jesus, step two is you get baptized. So baptism is a rite that initiates you into the role of a, a disciple of Jesus. Another verse, uh, Romans 6.3, baptism is a union with Christ's death. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In other words, we join Christ as we go down into the water, into death, and then come up. We're raised through faith. So it's a picture of joining him in his death. It's also a ceremonial washing that initiates you into the church. That's from 1 Corinthians 12. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So we can't look at, at baptism and say, it only means this. It means a lot. And I think the way to sum it all up is baptism means we're in Christ. We're his disciple. We're united with him in his death. We're in his church. We're part of his body. It doesn't initiate those things. It is the symbol of it. And so baptism now saves you means Everything Christ has done for you has brought you to this point. So now let's take that and look forward. What happened with Noah? He gets in the ark. The animals join him. I love that God closed the door. It's God who shuts the door. What's going on outside? The taunts, the, the ridicule, the laughter. Once that door closed, it dimmed. You could just hear the muffled voices outside laughing, maybe throwing rocks and stuff. But it wasn't bothering him anymore because he was safe in the ark. And then the next thing that comes is torrential waters, flood. It's God's wrath poured down. And what's Noah? Noah is safely inside, and he floats and sails away. 
Baptism, everything Jesus is for us, now corresponding to that saves you. Once you're in Christ, what are the ridicule and the, the, the scoffing and, and the lure to sin and all those things in the world do? Once you're in Christ, that dims. The noise sounds farther away. The, the enticements begin to fade and, and, and fall off. It, it begins to free you. And the best news is all of those things that were left behind, they will be judged by God. And so as ju God's judgment floods into the world, what happens to us? We're in Christ. We float past it. Baptism, corresponding to Noah's experience, now saves us. It's because we're in Jesus Christ. That's why he immediately goes, now, wait, don't, I know you're going to misunderstand this. This is not the washing of the body with, with water. That's not what I'm talking about. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. Let's bring this back to suffering again. Last time we heard about good conscience was be ready to uh, answer when somebody asks for the hope that's within you. Remember that? What he says right after that is, with respect and gentleness, not being belligerent, that you may have a good conscience. So the context, again, is suffering. This appeal to God for a good conscience is, Lord, I, I want to do all of these things that you're wanting me to do. And, and through baptism, that's, that's going to remind me of those things. That's going to help me do those things. So when we do a baptism, the person being baptized is preached physically. This is everything that's happening to you. That's why we join them. We're all there. It's because they're joining the church, and it reminds all of us. And that's our appeal to God for a good conscience, not so that we are now perfectly sinless. It's, it's we're, we're in Christ, Lord. May the waters of the flood flow around us. So if that doesn't satisfy, <laughs> it's the best I got, you guys. I got, I got nothing more. Um, where does Peter? Where does this lead, Peter? Where does it take him? How how does this now this image, this illustration of of baptism and arcs and wickedness and floods and everything? How does that help us have hope in the in the exile in the dispersion? Look where he goes with it. It's not about your church and your baptism and that kind of stuff. Verse twenty two. Who has gone, Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him? Jesus, who was killed in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, he, he's raised again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and now where has he gone? He has ascended into heaven, and he is at the right hand of God. Brothers and sisters, if you face opposition, if you face ridicule, if you face uh, um, uh, intimidation, heaven forbid we should face real persecution, where is your hope? Your baptism is saying it's not here. Your baptism is saying your only trip to heaven is through Jesus. And now Paul or Peter reminds us, where is Jesus? He's in heaven. Angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. Is there anything that can come against you that hasn't gone through Jesus' hand first? Everything has been subjected to him. Any trial, any opposition, any struggle you face has first had to go past your Lord and Savior. It didn't get in the ark on accident. It was brought in. And, and hasn't Peter told us, he's mentioned a couple of times, if you suffer, as, and, and that's God's will, there's a point, there's a purpose in it. So brothers and sisters, for us to have hope, 
We have to remember that it's Jesus who has ascended into heaven and all authority is under him now. You can face it. You can deal with it. You can stand it. There's another part, though, is we are called to obey, right? We are called to be obedient to him. And one of the things that he calls us to be obedient to is to not ignore those folks outside the ark, but, but to preach at them. And the good news is his spirit preached through Noah to that generation, and he got zero converts. He's commissioned us. He's told us, go, make disciples, baptize, teach. So he's speaking through us. So as we go out and we announce to the nation a righteousness that sounds barbaric to them, the Christian sexual ethic is, what? Are you insane? What we can know is Jesus is preaching through us. And the hope that we have is John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. So if Christ is preaching through you to this wicked and twisted generation, his people are going to hear his voice, and they will come out to you. The sheep are going to get in the ark. And so it's not your responsibility to do it perfectly and have all the right answers and know every single thing. Be faithful to preach what Jesus is telling us. Let him preach to those around us. So Noah may have suffered for what, what uh, God did, but, or for what God was doing in the world, for what God was calling that world to do, and God delivered him through it, sailed him right over top of it. Jesus is our ark. Jesus didn't get on the ark. He suffered the wrath of God for us so that we could be born through it. He's, he's the one who delivers us. And so now when we face opposition, when we face persecution, when the world is dragging us down, when it's trying to pull us into its corner, he's ascended into heaven. He has authority over angels and powers and principalities. There's nothing that can touch you. You want to be on the winning side there. I recommend that. So brothers and sisters, get in the ark. Your baptism now saves you. Get in the ark. Let's pray. Lord, I just I thank you for difficult texts, um, for difficult scriptures, because they really force us to dig in and to understand. And, and Lord, it's, it's kind of like having the food just out of reach, so we have to draw in closer. And so, Lord, thank you that you've given us this. Thank you that your apostle Peter, our apostle, has, has spoken to us this way. And, Lord, I know that the, the answers that we've had this morning are not totally satisfying, and there's yabbats, yeah but, Lord, the image is, is so clear. Jesus, our ark, has ascended into heaven, high above every power and authority, every person. So, Lord, would you... Inflame in our hearts hope so that in this dispersion, in this, this scattering, in this wandering in the, in the promised land, Lord, that we would be faithful and true to you. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.